I turned my mic pack on. There we go. So good morning. And uh, get your Bibles out. Turn to Job chapter 3. If you're wondering why worship in some sense felt a little bit like a bummer, you're going to find out in just a minute when we read the text. Uh, Come to a very solemn, very somber, uh, honestly a very dark uh, text. This is arguably one of, if not the darkest text in all of the scriptures. And as we continue in our sermon series through uh, the book of Job, uh, a couple of weeks ago we started with Job 1 and Job 2, and, and there we see the drama that unfolds and Job loses pretty much everything uh, in a matter of an afternoon, and then he's afflicted with these uh, horrendous sores. His wife gives him terrible counsel, and then he sits in silence for a week with his friends, and it's here in chapter 3 that Job finally breaks his silence and he laments his life. By the way, happy Father's Day. (laughs) I don't know how it works out this way, but we just tend to get some really bummers uh, of a message with respect to Mother's Day and Father's Day, but we'll trust that uh, God is sovereign over that. Uh, But Job 3 is where we find ourselves this morning, and and truthfully, we we joke a little bit about happy Father's Day, but, but, but... and I'm a father, and, and, and there's no shortage of things that, that you might have in, in your mind and in your life with respect to yourself as a father, or maybe you want to be a father, but you're not a father, and maybe your own father was really difficult, and the notion of lament today might be incredibly fitting for some, maybe even many of us. But as we come to Job 3, and as we think about this text, let me maybe ask us a couple of questions that I think will help us move into this space. And it's a space we don't normally spend a lot of time in. But can one be a believer, right? Can someone be a believer and find themselves in a place of deep despondency or despair? Can one be a believer and feel hopeless? Can someone be a follower of Jesus Christ and, and, and yet have seasons in their life that are so dark that they question as to whether or not they even want to live. And if that's true, and I agree with you, Heather, that is true. How is it that we can move to a place where we're honest with God about that? And Job 3 becomes incredibly helpful for us in this. Now, loved ones, I'll just tell you right here at the outset, we're going to get into some deep water this morning. Uh, some deep, deep water. Uh, because Job is going to lament the, tra- the tragedy that has befallen him. Um, and what we find in Job chapter 3, really the main idea of where God's word is going to lead us this morning, is captured in this idea right here. That in our suffering and despair, we are best served to honestly lament before the Lord. And I'll go so far as to say that lamenting is a gift. It's a good gift. It's a kind gift that God gives to his people as a means and a way for us uh, to process and to work through and to engage with tragedy, trial, despair, suffering, and the like. And so... I'm going to read Job 3. Normally, I would highly encourage you to follow along. I'm not going to discourage you from following along. But if there was ever a Sunday where you might want to just close your eyes and listen to this, this might be that Sunday. And what I really want you to capture, what I really want you to hear, is just the visceral and gritty nature 
of what Job is communicating here in Job chapter 3. So get your eyes on God's Word or close your eyes. Uh, I'm going to assume if you close your eyes that when I stop reading, you're going to open them. Uh, Otherwise, all bets are off on what I might say or do. So you've been fairly warned, okay? Uh, But here we go. Job chapter 3. After this... Right, that's such a loaded statement, all that's happened. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, A man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let the clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of that day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept and then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who's in misery and life to the bitter in soul? Who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than hidden treasures. Who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden? whom God has hedged in, for my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and when I dread befalls me, I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Loved ones, would you join me as we pray and ask God to give us wisdom and insight as we navigate this very uh, profound and pointed text. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come before you. God, we thank you for the gift of lament. God, we thank you that you offer to us even these difficult words, maybe even these confusing or troubling words to some of us. And God, we pray that as we open your word, you would give us wisdom and insight to be able to navigate and to walk through all that you would have for us here this morning. God, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. And God, I pray my brother and my friend, Grant Blankenship, and for Cedar Springs Church. God, thank you for his ministry in the East Mountains and the ways in which he's faithfully shepherding that body of believers. And we pray for them, and as much as we pray for us, that you would help us, God, to lament and to be honest and, and, and to, to be real before you. And so, God, I pray in these next few moments as we walk through this text uh, that that's exactly what, what we would be is honest and real. God, that you would expose and open our eyes and and reveal to us uh, what it is that you desire to show to us. 
God, maybe for ourselves, maybe for someone else. But God, this is no less your word than any other scripture. And so we need you to come and speak your word into your people. And that's what we're asking you to do now. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is The Gift of Lament. The Gift of Lament. And that might seem like an odd title. Um, and and a, particularly after reading chapter 3, my God, I don't know that there's any gifts in there. Mike, I think you're crazy. Um, but but I, you, you might be surprised. And so let, let me um, just back up for a moment and, and try to walk through what I want to do with the next few minutes of our time. Really three different things that I think will be helpful for us. First of all is I want to just walk through uh, chapter 3. And so we'll take the first third of our time or so and just walk through and understand what is it that Job is saying? What is it that he's not saying? Uh, what, what, why is he saying some of the things uh, that he's saying. Then secondly, I want to talk about how lament is a gift for us uh, and help us to understand how chapters like this really are for our good. uh, And it's God's kindness towards us. Uh, And then we'll spend the end of our time And we'll actually go over to Psalm 10 and we'll walk through Psalm 10 and try to give us some handles, make it practical and applicable on how it is that you and I can begin to employ and utilize lament uh, in your life and in mine. And that might be for you and I uh, to to be able to incorporate this or some of those handles with respect to lament might be a way in which you're serving a brother or sister in Christ uh, and helping them to navigate some of the trial or tragedy in their life. And you can stick it in your back pocket and utilize it when inevitably uh, comes to you. Uh, But before we even get to the text, I think it's important for us to understand what is lament, right? We say that word lament, uh, that's not a word we use often uh, in the English language, but uh, there's a biblical connotation uh, that's tied to lament. And while we would understand that lament is an expression of grief or sorrow, uh, but but in the the biblical sense, it's a prayer uh, that shows up in the form of grief or sorrow. And lament is not in opposition or it's not opposed to praise and worship. Uh, In fact, in an ironic way, it's actually the pathway or the route through the hurting, through the pain, uh, through the confusion, through the disorientation back to praise and worship. Uh, When we look at the scriptures in totality, uh, lament is all over the Bible. Now, it's not something that we tend to talk about, especially in the American church, and I think that's really to our detriment, which is why we want to preach expositionally, because you can't avoid things, right? You come to uh, Job chapter 3, and you're like, well, we're going to talk about uh, lament. Uh, but, but just to give you a sampling, there's an entire book in the Bible that is nothing but a lament. Anyone know what book I'm talking about? Right? Lamentations. I mean, it's literally in the title, right? Laments or lamentations. Uh, You might be surprised to know that roughly one-third of all psalms are psalms of lament. You get into the prophets, and there's large chunks within some of the prophetic authors of the scriptures uh, that that they spend time lamenting uh, their place and their standing because of their wickedness and their sin. And so this notion of lament, it's not foreign to the biblical authors, and it is not foreign to the people of God. And when we look at Job chapter 3, this is arguably one of possibly the darkest chapter in all of the Bible. And as I read through chapter 3, maybe you even found yourself a little bit surprised or shocked uh, by some of the things that you heard. Maybe you even thought to yourself, "Uh, Job, I don't think you can say that. And yet, what I want you to note, and while it will take us weeks as we move through the book, I want to just say this here. While Job finds himself in this place, and, and make no mistake, he's in an incredibly dark place here. Job will not stay here. 
And one of the reasons that Job won't stay here is because of what's going on right here in Job chapter 3. It's because of his lament. There's this irony that that the process of lament and the act of lament is often the salve that begins to bring healing and moves us by the Spirit of God into a place of healing. And so, so what some of us need to hear and to address issues in our own life this morning, others of us need to hear this uh, to come alongside of those who are in a place of lament. And so let's get into the text. And as I said, first of all, we're just going to walk through what is going on in Job chapter 3. In fact, three kind of distinct movements, if you will. And so first of all, look at verses 3 through 10. And in these verses, we see Job is cursing, and specifically he's cursing the day of his birth. Verse 1, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Verse 2, if you're into Bible memory, this is probably one that you want because it's one of the shortest ones in the Bible. And Job said, boom, you just memorized a verse of Scripture. That was really easy, wasn't it? And then you get into verse 3, and it just gets really dark really quick. Now, it's important for us, in fact, it's imperative for us to remember because for the next almost 40 chapters, we are going to be in Hebrew poetry. So we've departed from narrative. We're done with the story, uh, so to speak, for a while, although the poetry is going to tell us a story. But Hebrew poetry is more about making us feel something uh, more so than it is about informing us about things. Now, make no mistake, it will inform us, but the purpose of this is it's meant to be evocative, that we're meant to feel what Job felt, that, 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 that it's to move us. And gripped and grabbed by this. Not that it's uh, somehow you and I look at this and we can be distant or cold or disengaged with what's happening here. And so Job curses the day of his birth. Two things specifically. Look at verses 3 through 5. He, he's cursing his birth. I mean, the words here are, are so pointed. Let the day perish on which I was born. Hey, on the day that I was born, I wish that day was dead. And the night that said a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. I mean, he's cursing the day of his birth. He's desiring to reverse the creative order and to reverse history, namely his own creation and his own history. It's, it's almost an ironic twist on what we see in Genesis 1, right, where God says, hey, let there be light. Job is saying, on that day of my birth, let it be dark. Let God have no memory of it. That God would blot it out and that Job would be forgotten. Say, man, if I could rewind time, I'd go back to that day and eliminate it. In verse 5, let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. And then this phrase, let the blackness of the day terrify it. It's probably a creative allusion to an eclipse saying, I wish my life was eclipsed. That it was blotted out. It was unseen. It was unknown. He's cursing his birth. And this is so crucial for us to make this observation here, that while Job is cursing his birth, make note of what Job does not curse anywhere in chapter 3. He doesn't curse himself. He doesn't curse others. A number of you already said he doesn't curse God. That was the whole, the, the, the whole stick for Satan, right? He's going to curse you to your face. And even in his lamentation here, even in his lament, he's not cursing God. And there, this is a huge aspect of being able to lament well, loved ones is to be able to express our frustration, our disappointment, our disorientation before God while holding in tension the sovereign supremacy of our God. And Job is threading the needle here perfectly. 
He goes on in verses 6 through 10, and he curses his conception. Look at what he says, verse 6. That night, right, that night when I was conceived, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. I think verse 7 is so poignant in Job's verbiage here. Behold, let that night be barren. And on the night of my conception, let that night be barren. And then he says this, let no joyful cry enter it. I'm not sure that there's a better sound than the sound of a baby crying right after they're born. And Job here on the other side, no joyful cry. Don't, don't even let that come into being. He wants his conception to be barren. You get to verse 9, let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none. Nor see the eyelids of the morning. Job's saying, man, I, I wish that that night was a perpetual night and the next morning never came so that I would never be born. I mean, the, the, these are hard words that he's uttering here. And then from this curse, he moves now into his laments. Look at verse 11 and following. And Job begins to lament his life. And some of the dis- distinguishing characteristics of lament is that they often carry a deep sense of confusion or disorientation. Right? The, the, the sense of w- what is going on here? What, what is happening? I, I can't reconcile what I know to be true of God and what I see going on in the world. And that's why we see, see the, the word why show up so many times here in these next number of verses. It's this confusion. Right? Job laments his life. Notice two things specifically that he laments around in verses 11 through 15. We see Job has a deep desire for relief. Verse 11, why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me or why the breast that I should nurse? See, because had I died, is what he's saying, then I would have lain down and been quiet, I would have slept, then I would have been at rest. I mean, it seems so cold, and yet when we begin to understand what Job is really after, he's like, I just, I just want a break. I want some relief. I just want to be able to lie down and for there to be quiet and, and, and rest and sleep and, 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 and just this sense of peace. And it's not just quiet in the sense of there's not toddlers or, or children making a bunch of noise. It's this sense of inner turmoil that's been quelled. It's been quenched. He wants relief. He wants respite. He wants liberation from the brokenness in this life. And from the corrupting effects of sin. Now, in fairness to Job, I mean, can't we all at some level relate to this? I mean, isn't this what all of us want at some level? Some, some relief and some respite from this? Where, where, where that day comes, that, that, that's so often true of today, but, but a day comes where everything is not broken and corrupted by sin. Both in the mundane and in the most profound way possible. I've seen both of these play out in my life in this past week. So this week at the McDonald household, it's, it, it, we're, we're playing this game, although it's not really a game and it's not funny, but it's, let's see how many things can break. And it's like everything just keeps breaking. 
The door handle on my car broke. The, the pull switch on the ceiling fan broke. The, the nozzle on the kitchen sink broke. It's just like, come on, right? Everything keeps breaking. And so even in a mundane sense, there's this reminder of the brokenness of the world that we live in. But there's also a profound sense of that. So on Monday, uh, Becky and I were at the funeral of a 33-year-old guy that we grew up with. So leaves behind a wife, two little boys who were eight and five. And if you knew Colin, Colin was just this big, huge, strapping guy. I mean, probably six, four, the biggest shoulders you could imagine. Just this happy guy, and he's gone. I mean, doesn't that epitomize the brokenness of this world? Young, healthy, strong, and now gone. See, Job is lamenting the brokenness of this world and and, and the corrupting effects of sin. In fact, it sounds awfully similar to what Paul says in Romans 8. See, the New Testament has a perspective for this as well. Here's what Paul says. I'm going to read to you a, a chunk here from Romans 8. Let me start in verse 22. Here's what Paul says. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the, in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so there's this tension. I know that in the future there's something good, but right now I'm, I'm just groaning. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul goes on, he says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Did you catch that? In that moment where you literally can't articulate what you want to tell God, Jesus is saying, I got this, let me pray for you. And then he just groans on our behalf for us. That's incredible. And he who searches hearts knows what's in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then here's the verse that we know, although often we strip it of its context and try to make it say something that it doesn't say. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, right? The context of this is this intense brokenness that we live under the curse of sin. And yet God is working to redeem that. He goes on and he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so you have, even in Romans, right on the other side of the cross, you have this sense of, of the brokenness of the world. But there's a distinction. Right? There's a distinction in Romans that we don't find in Job because Romans finds itself on the other side of the cross. Right? There's this pivot point that's found in the hope of the gospel. It's the finished work of Jesus that allows us to see the brokenness of this world. But to have a gospel hope that one day it will be remedied. One day it will be alleviated. It's just not going to be today. And so today we lament for the brokenness. And you might be here today and you might be lamenting some tragedy or loss in your life. 
Maybe, maybe there's not tragedy. Maybe you just have this sense of feeling like I'm overwhelmed. Life is moving faster than I am capable of moving. It is pressing in on me. It is overcoming me. It's crushing me. Uh, maybe there's some of you have some sense of hopelessness in life. Like, what, what is the point? And what am I doing? Is this ever going to change? It's never going to get better. It's never going to get resolved. And see, Job knows exactly how you feel. He's like, I just want a break. There's a desire for relief. Then notice verses 16 through 19. Job laments his powerlessness. He's powerless. Right, look at what he says. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? Why would you say that, Job? Here's why. Because there the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. There they hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. And here Job gathers four different groups of people, and he's comparing and contrasting them with one another. And he's contrasting those who are in power, those who are in authority, those who rule over others with those who are subjected to those who are under their rule. Right, the wicked and the weary, the prison and the taskmaster, the small and the great, the slave and the master. And I think what Job is doing here is he's, he's referencing his own powerlessness. That Job is identifying with this group that's been given over to those in authority. That Job sees himself as someone who's weak and downtrodden. That he's powerless. Ever felt Powerless. Right, in a situation where you have no ability, no capacity to affect any change whatsoever. I remember moving through the adoption process with Eliana and at many times, just that deep sense of powerlessness. No recourse, no recoil, no leverage uh, that we could possibly apply. You're just at the mercy of, of others. Job is lamenting his own powerlessness, that he has no ability to change any of the things that are going on in his life. And he longs for the day that death will come because there, right, the troublers can't trouble him anymore. Just one other note on verses 16 through 19 that I think is maybe worth making, and maybe it's just having the funeral from Monday in my mind, but death is the great equalizer. Right, those who are rich and those who are powerful and those who are strong will meet the same fate as those who are poor, powerless, and weak. Right? Death will come for us all. And remember a day that is coming for you and I, loved ones, where death will level all this out. And it is only our standing before Christ that will be of any advantage for anybody. So if you find yourself in a position of power, you steward it wisely, because you will be called to account. If you find yourself in a position of powerless, powerlessness, you hold on to the fact that one day Jesus is going to rectify that issue. But death will come for us all. And Job here laments his life. And then in verse 20 through 26, just briefly here, we see that Job cries out in his pain. He's just crying out two things to make note of. Verse 20 through 23, here's what Job says. Why is light given to him who's in misery and life to the bitter in soul? Who long for death, but it comes not. And they dig for it more than hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. I mean, isn't that so pointed what he's saying here? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden? And then this phrase right here, 
is, is ironic in every sense of the word, whom God has hedged in. Right? This is an imprisoned cry of distress. Job's searching for death, and it's elusive. He's hedged in to life. Of course, being hedged in was the very thing that Satan accused was the reason that Job was righteous and pious. You've hedged him in. He's protected. Nothing bad can happen to him. And now in an ironic twist, Job feels hedged in. But there's no way out. There's no escape. There's no path forward. I'm hedged in and it's closing in on me. And so he cries out in distress. And then in verses 24 through 26, we see a cry of despair and fear. I mean, you you can just almost see him sighing as he's saying this. For my sighing comes instead of my bread. My groanings are poured out like water. Right? What I'm eating, essentially, Job is saying, is my sighings and my groanings. That is what is sustaining me. For the thing that I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. I'm not at ease nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. And all that he's fearful of is coming for him. It's chasing him down and overcoming him. I have the image in my mind of a lion hunting a gazelle and chasing, 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 and finally overcoming and overpowering. And it's that same sense that Job has here, this place of utter hopelessness. And where Job is, it's dark, it's painful, it's depressing, it's visceral. There's all kinds of different items going on here, but, but none of them are happy and cheerful and exciting. Oh, isn't this wonderful? And yet what I would suggest to you, loved ones, is this is an immense gift. Not the tragedy itself, but the gift of lament. And so let me pivot here for a moment. And talk about some of the best ways or maybe some of the ways that lament is a gift for you and I. Because inevitably, part of what should be going on inside of all of us is, what what do I do with this chapter? Like, what what do I do with this? How do I handle this? How do I uh, utilize this for God's glory? I mean, could you imagine if we just got to verse 26? I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Hey, Faith Church, you're loved and sent. Have a great week. I mean, what a bummer that would be. I mean, at best, that's disingenuous. At worst, it's just cold and cruel. And yet I think there are some great gifts for us. So here, let me give you four, four ways that lament is a gift for us. First of all, lament frees us. It frees us. In fact, it frees us in a couple different ways. First of all, it frees us to be honest. It frees you and I to be honest before God to express our doubts and our frustration, our confusion and our hurt, our disappointment and our pain. And this is where real freedom is for me to be able to express those things to God, not away from God. God's a big boy. You can't hurt him with your words. And God is inviting his people to come and to bring their lament And part of the freedom is that that lament moves us away from any sense of pretense toward God and into a place where we're just completely and totally honest. And it is an immense gift, an immense gift, if we're willing to utilize it. But not only does it free us, to be honest, I think lament also frees us to heal. I've already mentioned before that lament is often the pathway, it's often the route out of tragedy, out of despair, out of hopelessness. 
and into the process of healing. Some of you, some of you have been deeply mired in some tragedy and some struggle and some difficulty in your life and you've been there for months, for years, maybe even decades. And part of the reason that you might still be there is because you have not lamented. You have not expressed honestly. You have not taken this to the Lord and said, let me pour myself out before you. Now, maybe you've went and done that with your back turned to God, which is a radically different exercise than doing this and facing God. Right? Lament frees us to heal. And I'm not talking about our circumstances changing. I'm talking about you and I changing. Because that's what happens when we begin to lament. Secondly, lament challenges us. In all the right ways, lament challenges us. Again, let me give you two different ways that it challenges us. First of all, in our own life. It challenges us to, to, to be honest and to deal with and to address the, the, the losses and the tragedies and the disappointments to see the horrendous effects of sin and to wrestle through that. Right? To be honest about life itself... That lament challenges us to actually uh, engage and address these issues. That what I see in the world and what I see in my life and what I see in my family and what I see in our community, that, that I have to be honest about that before God. And it becomes a gift because it doesn't allow us to become numb. It doesn't allow us to become indifferent or, or cold or disengaged. It challenges us. It keeps, us, it, it keeps it in front of us. But not only does it challenge ourselves, but it challenges us with respect to others' life. Because as a believer living in a covenant community, it's not just about you and God or me and God. It's about us and our relationship before the Lord. And so lament actually challenges us in our willingness to come along, alongside others who find themselves in a similar place. I mean, think about Job's friends. And starting next week, we're, we're going to begin to eviscerate these guys because they're pretty terrible for the rest of the book. But th they heard the worst that Job had to say. And they didn't get up and leave, did they? Now, their response wasn't the best, but they didn't bail. Right? They gave Job the gift of presence. They're with him. I mean, they could have been like, this guy is a head case. He's going to be a ton of work. I don't even want to start with this guy. I'm out. But they didn't do that. I mean, could you imagine? Could you imagine what would change if you and I weren't weirded out when other people are honest with us? And we actually leaned into it instead of ran away from it. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about, right? The, the, the most common phrase that's used amongst people as you run into each other and probably the most common phrase that shows up on a Sunday morning, hey, how you doing? To which you would say, okay. you're going you're to land somewhere between okay and good, right? And then you're going to say, hey, Mike, how are you? And I'm going to say, I'm okay or I'm good. And, and, and we're lying to each other. Now, sometimes you really are good. But sometimes, like, you know, I'm really anxious, I'm really worried about this situation. I'm really stressed out at work. I'm overcome with what's going on in my child's life. I'm deeply depressed. I'm mired in sin. I'm doubting in my faith. Now, could you imagine? Hey, Charlie, how are you? 
I don't know if I believe the gospel, bro. Uh, what, do we, what, what do you say to that, right? And the vast majority of the time, anytime someone wants to be honest with us, what do we try to do? We either try to fix it or how do I get out of this conversation? Oh, hey, man, that's a real bummer. I hope things look up. Oh, look at the time. I got to go. It's like, where are you going? We're showing up for church. Then start for 10 minutes. But more often than not, we just try to get out of the conversation. What would it look like, church? If you and I could just be honest, how are you? I am just deeply grieved over what's going on in my son's life. Tell me about it. Instead of running from it, we were to run into it. See, for anyone who's a follower of Jesus, when someone begins to lament, when someone begins to be honest about the struggles and the trials and the difficulties in their life, that is a cue for you to go, there's ministry there. There's opportunity for gospel effectiveness there. I get to be the hands and feet of Jesus there. Any ministry that's worth doing is hard. Did you hear that? Any ministry that's worth doing is hard. If you want easy ministry, I got nothing for you. If you want gospel ministry, there's plenty of it. But show up ready to work because it's hard. And the gift of lament is it challenges us to be invested in others' lives. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. See, these are the people that will walk with lament through you. These are people that aren't afraid of the gritty and grimy and just the difficulty of what it is to walk through lament. See, lament challenges us to be honest with ourselves and to be committed to one another. Thirdly, lament exposes us. See, lament outs what's really going on inside of us. It's going to leave you bare. It's going to leave you exposed. It's going to unearth your disappointments with God, your confusion with God, ways in which you're hurting or in pain. And maybe they are hidden from others, but those are never hidden from God. But see, what what lament does is it gets it out into the light. And when things get into the light, that's when things get dealt with. Things don't get resolved in the dark, loved ones. Things get resolved in the light. And so lament is a gift because it brings it out. And now we know what we're actually dealing with and we can begin to walk down that road. Further, I think another aspect of the way that lament exposes us is it just exposes how little we really know about this and how we need to grow in this. For a lot of us, how incredibly uncomfortable this whole service has been. There's a pastor a few years ago at one of the Simeon's Trust uh, workshops and he, he said this, and I just, it's resonated in my mind for years. He says, the lament muscle is severely atrophied in the American church. We can't use it because we don't even know how to use it. We don't even know what we're doing. And I'll just own the fact that part of what's been exposed in me is I, I, there, I, just a lot of ways I got to grow up in this. I just don't know. There's a lot of ambiguity. But by God's grace, we're going to get better. And by God's grace, I'm going to get better and more comfortable and more willing to lean into this. Finally, fourth gift, fourth way that lament is a gift, is lament holds us accountable. Good, bad, or indifferent. See, you're on the hook now. Because you're not totally uninformed. You're not totally lost. I'm not saying you've got it all put together. I certainly don't have it all put together. But see, what lament does is it puts the ball in play. And it moves you and I off of the sidelines into the game. 
but it requires us to play. Right? This isn't five-year-old soccer where, okay, I'm on the field, but I'm chasing a butterfly. That's not how it works. Right? You're in the game. And you've got to participate in the game. And one of the gifts of lament is that it does hold us accountable. You're like, okay, that, that, that's helpful. I see this. Put handles on this. What does this look like on a Tuesday afternoon? So let me do this with the rest of our time. Flip over to Psalm 10. And as we get into Psalm 10, you might find yourself going, hey, I think we've seen this before. I've realized this, or maybe you even got some notes in your Bible about it. A little over a year ago, uh, we did a standalone on suffering, and we actually finished that sermon uh, by walking through Psalm 10 and uh, unfolding the process of lament. So God actually gives us a desired pathway toward healing in the scriptures. And so Psalm 10 is one of a number of places that we could go to. Uh, And I thought about going to a different psalm, or I thought about changing some of the verbiage, but truthfully, repetition is good for us, not bad for us. And so if you go, oh, I remember that, good. Hopefully it becomes more concrete in your mind. But you notice in Psalm 10, and there's some things we don't know, uh, some of the context and what exactly it is uh, that the psalmist is lamenting, although we do have an idea. And so for the rest of our time, let's work the process from lament to worship and let Psalm 10 be the guide for us. And so four steps in this process, if you will, or four distinct movements uh, that, we, that we see shown up in Psalm 10. And so look at verse 1. In verse 1, it says this, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? See, the first process, the first step, the first thing that if lament's ever going to happen is you and I have to choose to face God. Got to be willing to, to face God, to come face to face with him. And so the psalmist, there, there's an issue. We don't know particularly what the issue is, but the psalmist does. And so he doesn't run from God. He comes to God and he's asking these questions of God. He, he's saying, God, I, I see this trouble. I see this problem. Help me to understand this. You think about your own life. You think about your own struggle or trial or whatever it is. Will you face God? Will you go to him? Will you bring this to him? Will you ask of him? Are you going to run and turn your back from him? In a lot of ways, God's not very different than you and I. I don't know about you. I'm not really interested in talking to someone's back. I'm willing to bet you're the same way. I'm not sure why you think God would be happy to talk to your back. He won't. But he will unmistakably talk to you face to face. You don't begin to lament until we begin to face God. We have to be willing to face God. Now, part of facing God is is it brings into play the relational dynamic, which means that God will hear from us, but what else does it mean, loved ones? We got to hear from God. Right? It's not just me saying, well, hey, and then God going, oh, well, I'll just take it. No, no. Sometimes God's going to push back and sometimes God's going to speak back. And are we willing to hear what he has to say? We choose to face God. Secondly, look at verses 2 through 11. Uh, I won't read all of this, uh, but certainly parts of it. Starting in verse 2, it says this, In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. This way he's prospered all times. 
Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression under his tongue and mischief and iniquity. Jump down to verse 10. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see. The second thing that we see here is this is an expression of an honest complaint. Right? The psalmist brings his frustrations and he expresses them. In fact, he has a lot of frustrations. Loved ones, we've got to get to this point where we can honestly express our frustrations and our disappointments to God. Now, you might be sitting here going, well, I don't know if I can do it. Is there anything inside of you that God doesn't know? He sees right through that. There's nothing you're going to say where he's going to go, oh, I didn't expect them to say that. I didn't know that was going to come. He already knows, right? He knows about our doubts and our frustrations and our disbelief and our confusion. Let's not pretend like he doesn't. Now, maybe you've never felt like you could express yourself, or maybe you've never got to the point where you've expressed it. Right? God's word is teaching us how we're to express ourselves before God. So we express an honest complaint. Thirdly, look at verse 12 through 15. And here's where things begin to pivot. Here the psalmist asked, they ask God to act. Look at what he says. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you'll not call to account But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evil. Do recall his wickedness to account till you find none. We ask God to act. The psalmist is saying, God, would would you do something? Would you do something, please? Act on our behalf. But I want you to notice that the psalmist... Not only are they asking God to act, but they're asking God to act in accordance with God's character. So they're not telling God what to do. And they're not trying to get God to do something that he would normally do. They're saying, God, this is who you have always been. Continue to be this. Don't forget the afflicted. You've been a helper to the fatherless. Call Call his wickedness to account. Right? When we ask God to act, we're praying in accordance with God's character and God's will. And in this, we begin to see the psalmist begin to shift. Now, one, one thing that I think is important for us, and, and I think this is really the point to say it is, most of us don't struggle with asking things from God. That, we tend to be pretty good at that one, okay? Um, and and uh, most of our prayer is, is uh, ordered around us asking different things from God. And that's not wrong. God, God encourages, to, uh, encourages us to do that. But it is incomplete. And for a lot of us in this process, we're tempted to skip the first two uh, aspects that we see here and run right to asking God to fix it or alleviate it or bring down judgment or whatever it is. And in the process, I, I think the reason that so often God wants us to move through the process is it's far more than him just remedying the situation. right? It's moving the lamenter from a place of lament to a place of worship. And it's not just that God gives me what I want. 
But the relational dynamic where I'm honest and open with God and I'm face to face with God, where, where, where I express my complaint and then I'm asking God to act. And I think part of the reason that God does this is undoubtedly there's been times in your life, I know there's been times in my life where I will ask God for things, but I'm not really interested in facing God. And I'm not really willing in being, in, in being honest with God. I just want God to fix it or alleviate it. And you can't short circuit the process. Got to be willing to face God and be honest. And in that, we ask God to act. Finally, this, look at where he finishes. He says, the Lord is king forever and ever. Wait, what? Didn't you start by saying, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? He did, right? He did start with that. And now, 15 verses later, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You'll strengthen their heart. You'll incline their ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who's on the earth may strike terror no more. What happened? Well, I think the psalmist is trusting in God's character. There's no indication that their circumstances have changed. In fact, it's highly unlikely that they've changed. The only thing that's changed is the heart of the psalmist. He's been reminded of the character and the nature of God. And it changes how he's looking at his life and how he's looking at his circumstances. See, loved one, if your life is predicated upon your circumstances, you're riding a roller coaster. Right? When things are good, yeah, life's great. And, but what happens when you come to that next, like, edge of a cliff that you fall over? And you go racing back down. Oh, life's terrible. See, if our life is predicated by our circumstances, you're riding a roller coaster you have no control over. But if your life is predicated by the character and the nature of God, there's a constancy that rides throughout the highs and the lows that come with life. And this is the value of being able to trust the character of God. Regardless of the ups or the downs, we hold tightly to the character of our great God. So we work the process of lament let me just close. In fact, I'm going to borrow uh, almost exclusively from a guy named Mark Vrogop. Maybe you've heard that name. Maybe you haven't. Uh, he has written pretty extensively in a number of uh, blogs and articles and journal entries on lament. In fact, he recently wrote a book. It's called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. Uh, I haven't finished reading this. I'm about halfway through it, but I know enough about this guy that I would highly recommend this. This is been an incredible read. Eric Anderson, one of our elders, uh, whose wife died suddenly uh, about 15 months ago, read this, and, and he turned me on to this a, a couple weeks ago. Um, but I've read enough of, of Mark's stuff to know that it was probably going to be a good book. I would heartily recommend it to all of you. Uh, but in an article that, that uh, Vrogrop wrote probably two or three years ago, he, he gives four suggestions for laments. So let me just give you these four real quick, uh, and then I'll pray and we'll be done. But, and each of these are from Vrogrop. These are not mine. These are his. Here's what he says. Four suggestions for lament. Number one, lament with a humble heart. There's never a time to be proud or arrogant before God. To be angry or to attempt to place God in our debt. Right, so you and I can come to God in our pain and our confusion and our hurt. Um, but we, we come with questions but not with pride. We lament with a humble heart. Number two, he says to pray the Bible. Pray the Bible. Lament is not foreign to God. Lament belongs to God. God is a God who laments. And he's given, I mean, we've seen a couple of different examples 
uh, in Psalm 10 and Job 3 uh, that you and I can pray through. Uh, God's word will lead God's people in God's way. And it's no different with lament. Pray the Bible. Number three, uh, he says we must be honest. We must be honest. The whole point is to express ourselves honestly before the Lord. Humbly, graciously, uh, honestly. And then finally this. He gives this final caution that you and I don't simply complain. Right? Lament is not just a place for me to go and vent and pop off and, well, I feel better, I'll move on now. It's a process that honestly deals with the brokenness of life that moves us from the pain and the brokenness back to a place of worship and adoration. Now, there is a time of complaint, but that's not where they end. The time of complaint is what leads them to move forward towards the healing. Rogrop gives the illustration of thinking of a surgeon. Let's imagine you were to go in and have open heart surgery and you go in and the surgeon lays you on the table and they cut open your sternum and he goes, all right, it's good work. You guys have a good day. Uh, Doc, I have a huge cavity in my chest. Maybe we could deal with that and deal with the issue in my heart and That's what it is to see lament as the end. It'd be no different than a surgeon seeing cutting the person open for surgery as the end. See, lament is the beginning of the process that's going to lead to ultimate healing. And your circumstances, they might be, in fact, most likely they will still be difficult. But what lament does is it reminds us of the gospel hope that we have. So I read from Romans 8 earlier. Let me finish Paul's argument at the end of Romans 8 as a conclusion. He says this, What then shall we say to these things? And of course, these things are the groaning of creation under the brokenness of sin. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. And then he is going to list a number of things that you and I could easily lament over. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, Quoting here from Psalm 44, another psalm of lament. Paul finishes with this. He says, No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, loved ones, we who are in Christ, we are people who will lament but we don't lament without gospel hope. And that is part of what we hold on to as God leads us through us facing him and honestly expressing our complaint, asking God to act and then trusting his character in the process. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we...